You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The focus of this lecture is issues at the end of life. It will start with an observation about the advances of the contemporary period. It will then move to a discussion of contemporary medical, ethical, legal issues. And it will conclude with a reflection on the Christian understanding of death and a response to the medical, legal, ethical issues from that understanding. First, the observations. Dying is a natural process and death is its end. Human beings are made of corruptible matter which inevitably disintegrates. It is possible to hold this disintegration in abeyance, but not forever. For most of the history of humanity, death and dying were everywhere. Women, men, and children died, and there was very little that anyone could do about it. Pregnancy and childbirth had high rates of mortality and morbidity. Death in infancy was common, malnourishment, disease, famine, starvation, took their toll, and life expectancy hardly reached beyond a few decades. The social constructs surrounding death were simple. People died at home, surrounded by their family, and attended by clergy. Medicine, with its limited arsenal of tools, simply stepped aside. In modern history, really only the last 60 years or so, death has been held in abeyance, by the marvelous advances of medicine, first of antibiotics, then by increasingly sophisticated technology, by breathing machines, by feeding tubes, by transplantation expertise made possible by immunosuppressant drugs, and now by the possibility of tinkering with the building codes and signals of life, the genes. Death, when it occurs now, has become an affair of technology and of medical specialists. It is viewed somehow as a failure for medicine and for technology. Death has become removed from the home and family and clergy into the hospital. For many, death is achieved only when a battle is called to halt in an arena surrounded by medical personnel and machines. Human satisfaction with this new technology was short-lived. Human beings are no longer happy with this new high-tech construct. The lingering and litigated death of folks like Karen Ann Quinlan and Nancy Cruzan and others caused us to reappraise this technological construct. While we still want to acknowledge that technology is great, we also want to acknowledge that sometimes technology is not what we need. Sometimes technology does not serve the human good. Technology used to prolong dying, when the downward spiraling of the death process has been entered, and when dying is imminent, seems not to serve the human good. So we've seen now three phases in the human response to dying, and the transition to each phase was propelled by human desire. The passage from the first to the second was fueled by the need and the desire for more medicine. The transition from the second to the third was propelled by the need and the desire for better medicine. 
We are now in the third phase, and we know that what we need is more than medicine. We do not yet know what that more is. So now we are searching for a new construct. We have a vacuum. We've tried a few things. Some have been successful and some not. The Patient Self-Determination Act is now law. It allows patients to write advanced directives to be used when they are terminally ill and incompetent. And it requires hospitals to put into place procedures for recording and storing and making available the advanced directives. This was lauded on many fronts. Both the Self-Determination Act and its offspring, the Advanced Directive, have served to create many problems, even as many problems as they have solved. And both have caused a great deal of confusion. Some attempts have been made to reduce physicians to technicians who simply serve the will of patients, who almost without exception are untrained in the art of medicine. Furthermore, the Self-Determination Act seems to canonize the right to choose without asking what is chosen and what is the justification for what is chosen. It focuses on choice as controlling rather than obligation to choose rightly and wisely. In essence, it delivers the practice of medicine over to choices made by sick amateurs at best. Into this vacuum, a variety of remedies have been offered. The proposed remedies stretch along a line of options from one distant point of physician-assisted suicide to a far opposite point of hospice care. Physician-assisted suicide has entered as a possible remedy to the restraining of death by technology. It offers a guarantee of death with the assistance of the medical profession as an antidote to the technological prolongation of dying. And there have been a variety of initiatives in developed Western nations to accord this remedy the sanction of law. Into this vacuum, too, comes the hospice movement with its central principle, do nothing which hastens death and do nothing which prolongs dying. At its best, the hospice movement offers care, comfort care and company to the dying. The problem with the hospice movement is that it takes time and enduring care. These require patience and commitment, and we are not a patient people. The philosophical arguments that have been put forth in favor of physician-assisted suicide are powerful, and they are interwoven with the call for compassion. Compassion is a rich human emotion which allows us to share the sorrow of each other and binds us in solidarity with each other as we struggle through the trials of life. But compassion as a motive for action is only one element in the determination of the integral goodness of an act. The heart must be informed by reason, and reason must examine the adequacy of the motives, the object of the act, the circumstances, and its consequences. Recall Lifton's account in The Nazi Doctors of compassion as the moving force for the medically encouraged and authorized killing of handicapped children, protected by the authority of the state and with their parents' consent. These were children whose lives were described as having existence, but not life. Their compassionate killing was, in the words of Leo Alexander, a small beginning, 
and the killing quickly progressed to the compassionate killing of impaired adults, and eventually to the killing of 12 million. With these observations in mind, let us turn to the question of physician-assisted suicide as an aid in dying. The debate on physician-assisted suicide is really framed in a set of arguments, legal, philosophical, medical, and practical. The legal arguments in the United States center on the protections found in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, specifically in the Substantive Due Process Clause and in the Equal Protection Clause, and on several Supreme Court decisions, specifically Cruzan and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and on common law notions of freedom from unconsented touching. The central philosophical notion is that of autonomy. In medicine itself, perturbations are caused by the nutrition-hydration debate, by the distinction between withholding and withdrawal of care, by the issue of pain management, by confusion as to the role of the physician, and by the fear of litigation, which taints all of these. The prohibitive cost of health care at the end of life is a legitimate pressing concern for families as well as for societies. The examination of the legal, philosophical, and medical issues follows. The legal issues in the debate in the United States are similar to the issues that are central to the debate in other developed nations. The legal issues focus on the concepts of liberty and equality. If to liberty and equality are added the emotion of compassion, there is indeed a powerful set of arguments brought forth to defend the right to medical assistance in suicide. Closer scrutiny of those arguments, as they are claimed to be embedded in the provision of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, is an appropriate starting point to examine the philosophical notions that are easily expanded to the general argument. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution was added in 1868 in the wake of the American Civil War to guarantee to former slaves the rights accorded to all citizens. It had nothing to do with death. The two critical clauses in the amendment, for our purposes here, are, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protections of the law. The first clause under consideration has been designated the substantive due process clause inasmuch as there is an attempt to render substantively the notion of liberty. What is it that citizens are at a liberty to do? What, if any, are the limits on liberty? Specifically, in regard to the question of medical assistance and suicide, the question is, is the notion of ordered liberty broad enough to encompass the assistance by physicians or other medical personnel in accomplishing suicide for a sick person? A recent decision of the United States Supreme Court, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, described its understanding of that liberty as it applies in reproductive decisions in these terms. Liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. Proponents of the right to assistance in suicide have attempted to make this understanding of liberty applicable in the pursuit of their goals. Is that the correct understanding of liberty? And can it be expanded to include the liberty to end life? 
Scrutiny of the passage shows it to be so broad as to be without limit, open to any choice. A subsequent Supreme Court decision made short work of what has now been named with considerable derision the mystery passage. The liberty that is met in the Constitution is the notion of ordered liberty, liberty that is balanced by rights and duties of others and by our rights and duties. And if there be any room for common sense in the debate, then the observation that liberty cannot be exercised without life has meaning. Against the right to assistance in suicide by medical personnel as a liberty right, there are the asserted rights and obligations of the state. The state, in the exercise of its parents' patrier role, articulates at least six obligations that fall within its province. They are the preservation of the life of each person, the discouragement of suicide, third-party interest, the integrity of the medical profession, the protection of the ill from untoward pressure of others, and the protection of citizens of the nation from abuses that it has observed in other nations. The obligation of the state to preserve the lives of its citizens is one of the fundamental duties of the state. In fulfillment of that obligation to defend life, the state has in place a wide range of protections from prohibition against killing to welfare laws to sustain the lives of those who cannot care for themselves. The reciprocal obligation of the citizen and of the polity to live and to protect life is as ancient as the politics of Aristotle and as new as the constitution of any emerging nation. Life is the fundamental right Without the exercise of the right to life, the exercise of any other right, liberty or property or citizenship is impossible. The state takes seriously its role in the protection of citizens against suicide. The reason for this concern on the part of the state is that the careful study of suicide in such places as the report of the New York State Task Force reveals suicide to be an act of desperation most often committed by people who are suffering from treatable clinical depression. The task force, having come to the realization that suicide is most often not a rational act, reached the conclusion that medical professionals ought not to facilitate the act. Now, it is true that suicide was decriminalized in 1970. Nonetheless, the decriminalization of suicide was not meant to and does not legalize the act of suicide. Recognition of the illness of the person committing suicide, the extravagance of decreeing criminal penalties for a sick person who committed suicide, and concern for the consolation of grieving family members moved the law to decriminalize suicide. The expectation that attended the decriminalization was that the medical community, along with the cooperation of appropriate social and religious agencies, would find medical, social, and religious interventions to care for depressed or mentally ill people to protect them from the harm of suicide. Third-party interests to be protected by the state include the interests of children and of spouses who might be financially and emotionally dependent on the person contemplating suicide. Third-party pressure on a person contemplating suicide may be the pressure of family members to balance needs and interest, such as the care of the sick family member versus the education of a child, 
the pressure of poverty, the pressure of dependence, including the stigma of loss of function, the pressure of being a member of a minority, the pressure of being a woman, and the pressure experienced by the authority of a medical professional whose suggestion that life be ended may be perceived by the patient as a prescription. Inasmuch as these pressures interfere with the exercise of informed consent by inhibiting freedom, the state prudentially exercises a concern about these potential constraints. The concern of the state for the integrity of the medical profession is an important state interest. The medical profession has its origin and in its commitment to serve the life and health of patients. Affirmation of this dedication is clearly articulated in the Code of Ethics of the American Medical Association, which says this, physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with a physician's role as healer. It would be difficult or impossible to control, and it would pose serious societal risk. The observation of practices surrounding death and dying in other nations can be instructive for nations considering the adoption of new policies. The Netherlands may serve as a course for studying the practice of active euthanasia and active suicide by physicians. The practice of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide has had general acceptance in the Netherlands, despite the fact that both practices were forbidden by law until very recently. This was the progression. In 1984, the Royal Dutch Medical Association issued a set of guidelines for the practice of euthanasia. The guidelines required four conditions to be met. They are, first, the patient shall be a mentally competent adult. Second, the patient shall request euthanasia voluntarily, consistently over a reasonable period of time, and the request be documented. Third, the patient must be suffering intolerably with no prospect of relief, although the disease may not be terminal. And fourth, the doctor must consult with another physician. The combination of the possibility of making a voluntary informed decision and of being in the condition of suffering intolerable pain presents a problem. The bioethical world has watched carefully the experiment in the Netherlands. Many bioethists thought that because of the unique nature of the society and culture of the Netherlands, that country might serve as a model for the successful implementation of medically assisted delivery of death. That assessment changed with the publication of the Remelink Report. Professor Remelink was appointed to head a commission to investigate the medical practice of euthanasia. The Remelink Report presented this data. In 1990, 1.9% of the deaths, 2,300, were caused by voluntary euthanasia. In 1995, the percentage rose to 2.3%, 3,100 deaths by voluntary euthanasia. In 1990, three-tenths of 1% of the deaths, about 400, occurred with physician-assisted suicide. In 1995, four-tenths of 1% of the deaths, 540, occurred from physician-assisted suicide. In 1990, Eight-tenths of 1% of the deaths, 1,000, resulted from non-voluntary euthanasia. In 1995, this number dropped to 945, or seven-tenths of 1%. The deaths from non-voluntary euthanasia are startling. 
as is the incremental growth in deaths from voluntary euthanasia and from physician-assisted suicide. Furthermore, with the passage of time, the categories for permissible euthanasia have been expanded. In 1994, suffering was expanded to include unbearable mental suffering. In 2001, the practices of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide were made legal in the Netherlands. A significant addition to this new law is the expansion of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide to minors between the age of 12 and 16 with the consent of their parents. The increments in numbers and the categories does indeed suggest a slippery slope. The state, in exercising due diligence in the performance of its parents' patrie role, does this when it factors into its deliberations these worrisome observations. Let us return to the provisions of the 14th Amendment. The second clause under consideration, the Equal Protection Clause, is understood by those who argue for physician-assisted suicide in this way. Since the end or object is death, it matters not how death is accomplished. In some, death will be accomplished by the withdrawal of treatment, and in others, it will be accomplished by a lethal dose of medication. If the withdrawal of treatment is allowed so that death may be followed, so too should the dispensation of lethal medication. This, they argue, is to treat the dying equally. This argument fails in an important distinction, namely the distinction between allowing to die and killing. In the former, death, as a natural occurrence, occurs from the underlying pathology or the failure of organ systems. Technology and medical interventions, which no longer serve the good of the person, are withdrawn in order not to prolong the dying process. The technological medical interventions are deemed medically inappropriate. They do not benefit the person. In the latter instance, the patient is intentionally assisted in self-killing by a profession committed to care, to cure when possible, and to cope when care is not possible. And finally, just to care when that is all possible. If physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia are judged unethical, and if the prolongation of the dying process by technological interventions that prolong dying are also unethical, how then ought dying to be accomplished? Professor Gil Mylander suggests that dying and death are to be approached as neither the greatest evil nor the ultimate good. Dying is natural and death is its end. But death is not the ultimate end for human life. It is passage. Hence, death is not the ultimate evil. Human life is a gift, a finite gift to each individual to be lived as a particular gift with hope sustained by faith that surely holds that the end of our life lies in eternal and joyful union with God. So life is to be held and to be lived as gift with all of its particularities and commitments. The death of any person is the death, the loss of a unique person whose life touched countless others. So death is to be experienced as pain both by the dying and by those who remain. It is right for human beings to mourn death and the losses that are brought on by death. Mylander reminds us that even in the most dignified of deaths, we need to recognize the presence of a hostile power, the last enemy, from which Jesus himself shrank, a power that cannot be overcome simply by dying. Death, then, is not the ultimate good. 
C.S. Lewis in Miracles suggests the appropriate manner for the Christian to countenance death. Lewis wrote this, one view is the lofty view, which reached its greater intensity among the Stoics, that death doesn't matter. That is, kind nature's signal for retreat, and that we ought to regard it with indifference. The other view is the natural point of view, that death is the greatest of evils. The first idea simply negates, the second simply affirms our instinct for self-preservation, neither shows any new light on nature, and Christianity countenance neither. Its doctrine is more subtle. On the one hand, death is the triumph of Satan, the punishment of the fall, and the last enemy. On the other hand, only he who loses his life will save it. We are baptized into the death of Christ, and it is the remedy for the fall. Death is the thing Christ came to overcome and the means by which Christ conquered. To walk that fine line requires that there be no direct killing, either by others or by ourselves, that there be no assistance in suicide, and that there be no prolongation of dying. To do either rejects the gift of life as created life. The exact and powerful conceptual tools of the tradition such as the distinction between extraordinary and ordinary care and the principle of double effect assist understanding and must be applied with absolute firmness. A person is required to take ordinary care, but a person is not required to take extraordinary care. This applies particularly to nutrition and hydration. Nutrition and hydration, even nutrition and hydration provided by medical means, are generally considered ordinary means of preserving life. However, if nutrition and hydration are not a benefit to the person, that is, they prolong dying or cause pain or burden that outweighs benefit, they are no longer obliging. The principle of double effect then allows an act which in its execution has two effects, one good and one bad, as long as only the good effect is intended. The goodness of life and the goodness of its end must be affirmed. It is perhaps in dying that the experience finally of human nature as created and radically dependent upon God is affirmed. So then what ought Christians to do? We need to acknowledge our finitude and acknowledge that death is not our end. We shall die and we need to prepare for death. We must live and die in such a way as to model our beliefs. Jesus experienced sadness in his dying, and we shall experience sadness in our dying. Those who love us will experience sadness in the knowledge of our dying, just as the disciples experienced sadness in the dying of Jesus. We should not abandon each other. The dying have much to teach the living, as they patiently endure dependence and care, and the living may be truly compassionate when they care for dying people. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.